very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance Joseph Wang of FedGuy.com and our esteemed guest, Dr. Claudio Borio, head of the Monetary and Economic Department at the Bank for International Settlements. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much for having us. And for you guys who don't know, Claudio is one of the titans in the macro world. I've learned tremendous amounts from him. He's written enough to fill a small library. So it's a real treat to have him on today to hear his thoughts. It really is. Joseph, you, you've read a lot of that that library. So our first topic I want to, to tackle is the interplay between monetary policy and fiscal policy between governments and central banks. And Joseph, can you formulate a, a question for, for Dr. Borio just to get us started? One of the things that we, we learned traditionally in, in school, um, at least when I was growing up, was that you know monetary policy is somewhat independent. They do their thing and fiscal policy does theirs. I think that's increasingly becoming more complicated to say because it seems like monetary policy obviously influences fiscal policy and fiscal policy would also influence monetary policy. So whereas we would like to think of them often as independent, they are strongly related. Um, Claudio, can you talk about how that you know relationship is? Let me start by saying that Fundamentally, fundamentally, monetary and fiscal policy are very tightly linked, um, inextricably linked, I, I would say. First of all, these are the two key policy levers of the state when it comes to macroeconomic policy and not just macroeconomic policy. Secondly, um, they are ways through which the state can have privileged access of resources. Think about printing money. Think about uh, raising taxes. They back each other up, and that's very important too. You know, um, monetary policy can avoid the technical default of the government, so you can stretch the extent to which you can build up debt without creating big problems. On the other hand, uh, the the effectiveness, the power of monetary policy comes from state backing in the form of taxes. They, uh, the channels through which they influence the economy, financial conditions, they're very, very similar. Um, the, uh, they operate, the balance sheets of the government and of the central bank are also inextricably linked. And we have seen this in particular with issues like QE and, and so on. So it's, it's inevitable that these two policies have to coexist. And the question is how to ensure that those policies coexist in a kind of, uh, in a good way, you know, that they are comfortable bedfellows as opposed to uh, enemies of each other. And one of the things we see in your work is that I really like that you have a very long historical perspective on this. The degree of, uh, I guess, independence of monetary policy has been given really varies across time. I think, uh, let's say, during the Great Moderation, we can think that there was a high degree of independence. But uh, if you look, let's say, take a century and wide view, it, it, it wasn't always the case, right? It seems to de depend a lot on uh, political developments and maybe globalization. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, if there is something that has gone in cycles is central bank independence. And the previous heyday of uh, central bank independence was indeed the first globalization era that ended quite tragically, if you like, uh, in the 1930s with the Great Depression. That's largely the era of the, of the gold standard. Um, and then central bank independence disappeared and it came up again during the 1990s and, and so on. It, 
particularly in the form of inflation targeting or as underpinning, as a, as a mechanism to underpin the effectiveness of inflation targeting. Now, the link between globalization and, um, and central bank independence has been subject to debate. When I, when I raised it, uh, I did find some uh, criticism or opposition. The basic reason why I argue that the two things are related is that they, they stem from the, the same type of zeitgeist, from the, the same philosophical, political fountainhead, which is the belief in uh, open markets, the belief in countries that uh, follow the rules of the game, the belief in a small government. Um, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that globalization is opposed both from the, from the left and from the nationalist right. And these are also the same type of political um, philosophies that do not believe in central bank independence, who believe in the importance of the state and in the supremacy of the state, as opposed to the checks and balances that central bank independence is supposed to put in place. So it's because of that that I think that somehow they are related is because they spring from the same type of philosophy an approach to political uh, political economy. You've done some work uh, at the BIS on the uh, relative impact of how independent monetary policy is and its impact on the inflationary effect of fiscal stimulus. So when monetary policy, policy is independent, the uh, inflationary effect of fiscal stimulus is much lower than when uh, monetary uh, policy is, is, is uh, less, less, less independent. How, how do you measure independence and, and, and it's also, uh, if, a, if, a if a fiscal government is running a large deficit at a time when a central bank is raising interest rates or has a high level of rates, is that uh, sort of by definition uh, independent? Or does, it, does that actually have to do with the, the structure and the, the stated policies? You can measure independence in many, many different ways. You can go the institutional legal way. You can go the the way of how far does monetary policy actually respond to, to inflation. There are a number of different ways. Now, the, the key point of that uh, type of work, which was carried out by some of my colleagues, is that as long as um, the, uh, the fiscal position is not constraining enough, dangerous enough, um, then unsustainable enough or perceived to be unsustainable enough, then what you have is that central bank independence can be very effective or can be effective in underpinning uh, a low inflation regime. At the same time, if the fiscal position goes completely out of hand, uh, then central bank independence is much more challenged because particularly in emerging market economies, because if you raise interest rates, they can actually add to the problem as opposed to help ameliorate the situation because you make the fiscal position even more unsustainable, which can create big market disruptions, particularly for economies that are very open to, to capital flows. And this is typically what happens in, in emerging market economies. So you have two types of... Uh, forms of fiscal dominance, if you like. You have fiscal dominance that operates through the political economy, governments effectively trying to constrain the central bank through, through a number of means. And then you have 
fiscal dominance that is purely economic dominance. And that's a situation in which even if the central bank is independent, it's the effectiveness of interest rates in dealing, in stabilizing the economy and inflation is much reduced. For example, they raise interest rate if there are concerns about the sustainability of the fiscal position, the currency plummets because capital flows uh, take hold, and that in and of itself raises inflation further. So that's a really good point. So sometimes, as Dr. Borio discussed, so even though the central bank wants to do its job, it has political constraints. I think um, I think former Fed Chair Burns gave a speech at the anguish of central banking when he would discuss, you know, I could have raised interest rates anytime to stop inflation, but the moment I did that, it seems like the culture and politics of the time wasn't really supportive, and so I wasn't able to to do to do my job. So I guess that would be one political constraint. That's the political economy type of uh, fiscal dominance, as opposed to the purely economic type that I was describing for emerging market economies. And both actually can be quite relevant, depending on the country-specific circumstances. In the United States, for example, it's less likely, and given the dominant role of the dollar in, uh, in the international monetary and financial system, and the fact that uh, other countries as long as you're not too undisciplined, uh, actually want to buy government debt, that this type of mechanism could always operate, but it may take a much, the fuse may be much longer and the degree of unsustainability may need to go, uh, may need to be higher before you actually see those type of issues. Can you describe how a high level of debt as a percentage of GDP is uh, inherently poses a, a risk? And at, how do you ascertain at what level it begins to become a problem? At 80% of GDP, 100%, 150%, uh, you've got some charts about uh, debt projections, both for advanced economies and then emerging market economies, about where debt to GDP is, is going to be. At, at what point do you, you, do you forecast this to be a problem? And might you be able to draw an analogy between your concerns about public debt with your concerns about the private debt in the early 2000s? I would say that it's very hard, very, very hard to set a particular limit. Um, and the main, uh, because that will very much depend on country circumstances. I, I, I was just describing, for example, how different, how the United States is able to carry higher levels of debt than an emerging market economy. Um, the key mechanism is precisely the fact that uh, debt is, um, high debt makes the economy very sensitive to interest increases in interest rates, which brings, which brings with itself both political and economic consequences. Um, now, in the case of private sector debt, this, the reason is similar. Uh, the, the economy is um, very uh, dependent, very sensitive to higher interest rates. Um, but of course, in the case of private debt, what you have is typically the case of... Uh, households uh, and firms retrenching, financial stress, and so on and so forth. In the case of the central, in, in the case of the government, even if the, if the government does not become fully insolvent and you have bankruptcy and some kind of restructuring, you could still have macroeconomic consequences as a result, for example, of what I mentioned earlier. There is also some evidence that suggests, I mean, this is contested, but that suggests that after a certain level of debt, you, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the 
growth of the economy flattens. Um, and this could arise from a number of mechanisms, not least the fact that if you have high debt, then you may need to raise taxes. If you have high debt, that you may crowd out the private sector and so on and so forth. Um, so these are two types of different mechanisms that can come to work. The first has more to do with stress in the short term, macroeconomic stress in the short term, when unsustainability is perceived to be an issue. The second is something that operates at uh, over longer horizons and has to do with weakening the productive capacity of the economy. And how would you assess the interest rate sensitivity of a hugely broadly question, but but the, the global economy? And then, of course, you can divide it into the, the, the US, Europe. I think, and I, I was definitely among the, the chorus of folks who thought that uh, going from you know, 0% to 5.3%, uh, for the, from the federal funds rate would have caused an enormous slowdown in uh, the economy and perhaps markets. But so far, the U.S. economy has been very resilient. But but that's just the, the U.S. How would you assess the uh, sensitivity to, to rising interest rates as central banks around the world have raised interest rates? If I take the question narrowly, I mean, the, the broad, the, the bigger question is, and maybe we come back to that, is that the world has become more and more dependent on uh, on debt as a mechanism to grow so, so it's like uh, a growth a debt uh, debt dependent uh, growth model for the for the global economy which i think is dangerous um, when it comes to the specific question that you've just raised as to why is it that uh, maybe aggregate demand has proved less uh, sensitive to higher interest rates than one might have expected it's clearly the case, it's clearly the case that high levels of debt, all else equal, mean that higher interest rates will generate problems for the, for the private sector because of the, of the debt burdens that they have to face. And debtors tend to respond more strongly than creditors in, in this context. This is, this is a kind of regularity that you see regardless of the way that you slice and dice the data. But some, all, all else is not equal. And something that has happened during the, low, uh, during the long period of low rates and low inflation is that many private sector agents, both households and firms, have lengthened the maturity of their debt, which means of their fixed rate debt, to be more precise, which means that they are less sensitive to increases in interest rates that they would otherwise have been, and they might have been in the past. Now, of course, that delays the impact of higher interest rates. It doesn't actually reduce the impact. And this, of course, is one of the concerns these days, that maybe you could have some kind of cliff effect at some point, whereby when all this debt comes due, when households and when firms have to refinance uh, their position, they could run into trouble. And again, obviously, the situation varies across different countries in the world, but the overall picture is one in which, and again, I'm sort of simplifying a bit, the overall picture is one in which both private and government debt levels are historically high around the world. I would just add that the BIS has a recent piece where they have a wonderful graph illustrating Dr. Boyle's point, where we could see at least, especially in the US, that there was a very, very clear lengthening of maturities for debt, and also that that maturity wall is really staggered over the next few years. So as Dr. Boyle notes, that's a, a lot of people really haven't uh, rolled over into higher interest rates yet. But 
On the point of very, very high debt levels, one of the things that I've learned from you that I thought was really fascinating is the idea of a financial cycle that, that is related to, but separate from the economic cycle that we usually talk about. So let's say expansion, recession, and so forth. But there's also this other financial cycle, which I think reflects our monetary economy. Can you tell us a little bit about that idea and how it connects to maybe where we are in the cycle and the ever increasing debt burdens that we see? Sure. Um, again, there, there are many aspects to that, but, but just to simplify and to put it in some kind of historical perspective, think of a world which is financially repressed. Then in that world, financial cycles are unlikely to, to take hold. By financial cycle, I mean a situation in which you have financial expansions that generate the seeds and are therefore are followed by financial contractions. And the mechanism is, is a very simple, it's, it's an old mechanism. And let me stress that the idea of the financial cycle actually predates the idea of a business cycle, partly because it was easier to measure, or at least people could see it more easily. And that's the idea that you have a self-reinforcing uh, process through which stronger credit expansion and asset prices feed onto each other risk-taking feeds both asset prices and credit expansion. And so the balance sheets become overstretched. And at some point, this process cannot go on and basically reverses. And while financial cycles build up slowly, they tend to turn much more violently. Um, and the business cycle is, is related, but are simply the ups and downs that, again, I, I think are largely endogenous in the sense that expansions tend to create problems or sow the seeds of uh, sow the seeds of the contractions that in business activity and the two are related but not quite the same in the sense that if you look at uh, across a, a wide range of, a range of countries financial cycles tend to be longer than business cycles but of course the I would say that the more serious recessions as opposed to just slowdowns in economic activity and the like are related to the uh, the bust phase of, uh, of financial cycles. But financial cycles have become bigger and uh, longer following financial liberalization in the mid in, in the early to mid 1980s around the world. Before that, we didn't quite see them. And where do central banks? Uh, play a role in that cycle? Uh, do When central banks cut, do they initiate or spur on the formation of, of credit and uh, a boom? And then after they you know, raise rates a, a lot and tighten monetary policy, does that sort of uh, hasten uh, the, the bust phase where, where credit tightens? I think that the relationship between central bank policy and, uh, and the financial cycle is less to do with like individual changes in interest rates, uh, a, a reduction sparks uh, the, the credit expansion and increase sort of uh, sparks a credit contraction. It's more the idea that it's the monetary policy regime that is relevant. And by regime, economists talk about reaction functions. It's how the central bank systematically responds to the evolution of the economy. And... Um, one thing that we, we point out in the, in the annual economic report or in my, in my previous work is that uh, there was a major change in the nature of the business cycle in, in the mid-1980s. 
as a result of the confluence of uh, financial liberalization that I mentioned and the globalization of the real economy, which helped to keep inflation low, hardwiring low inflation, supporting central bank actions to bring it down. Now, how does the reaction function of the central bank come in in this context? Well, if the central bank focuses very, very uh, strongly on near-term inflation, if the central bank does not pay much attention to the behavior of credit uh, aggregates or indeed to monetary aggregates, then because inflation remains low and stable during the buildup, during the expansion, economic expansion, and we know that that's roughly what happened since the mid-1980s onwards, then there is no reason for monetary policy to, to raise interest rates. And as a result, the, this accommodates the buildup of, this, of the financial cycle, which at some point turns. And I think that what we saw in the most spectacularly in, in the form of the great financial crisis is a clear example of this uh, process. But this is just one example. Um, what we basically said that before the mid-1980s, with financial repression and non-globalized financial system, no, not much huge amount of trade integration, the, um, the, uh, the main cause of recessions was an increase in inflation that generated, that, that induced the monetary policy tightening. After that, the types of bigger recessions that we saw were the result of financial booms turning into financial busts. So we turned into what we might call an inflation-induced or a financial cycle-induced recession. And that has actually important implications for the gradual loss in the policy room for maneuver that occurred uh, following the mid-1980s. Right, so there were secular disinflationary forces starting from the mid-1980s that uh, induced central bankers to not uh, hike interest rates perhaps as much as they, they would have, and, and that uh, encouraged credit creation. That's very interesting. Like you were mentioning, Jack, it seemed that the central banks were all focusing on real economy stuff, focusing on the economic cycle, seeing that inflation was tame. So, you know, they... they they, they kept interest rates the way they did, but not really looking at uh, the buildup in financial imbalances in the economy where, as Dr. Royal mentioned, credit continued to expand and expand until finally it, it went bust uh, in uh, the great financial crisis. Uh, but since then, of course, because of a lot of the work done by the BIS, there's a lot more awareness of this financial cycle. And now even the Fed and many other central banks actually have financial stability reports uh, to report on all those developments so that they're I guess, keeping an eye on that as well. And of course, uh, a lot of reforms, the post-Great Financial Crisis, say Basel III reforms, were aimed to address more of these financial imbalances and so far seem to have been very successful, as we saw in March 2020, where the financial economy didn't do well, but the banks, the banking system, financial system, uh, in large part because of the regulations, did very well. I think you're very right in emphasizing regulation because one of the problems that we saw during the financial liberalization era was that the regulation, the prudential regulation of the financial system didn't keep up. And, and this effectively helped de-anchor the, uh, the financial system, the, provided further room for the buildup of uh, these financial imbalances that I was uh, mentioning before. So it's, it's a series of circumstances that somehow uh, provided fertile ground for, for the change. And in particular, which meant that the, uh, the signal of 
unsustainable economic expansions, the signal of constraints on the productive capacity of the economy wasn't so much inflation any longer, but was this financial aspect of the economy, this financial imbalance. You draw a distinction between a high inflation regime and a low inflation regime. High inflationary regime, uh, different subsectors of, of inflation are much more correlated to each other. So in, inflation begets inflation. What regime uh, are we in right now? Are we in a low regime inflation or are we in a, a high regime inflation? We are in, in, in a situation in which we do not want the economy to get stuck in a high inflation regime. So we are, in, if you like, in that gray area, a twilight zone between, between the two. Um, just to underline the point that, that you made, the, the evidence, we have it in an annual economic report, we, then we wrote a monograph, I think is quite clear. Although, you know, there is no precise point at which you basically switch from one to the other, for the, just as I mentioned a moment ago. But the idea is that what we measure as inflation, when inflation is relatively low and stable, is largely the result of idiosyncratic price changes as opposed to common price changes. Idiosyncratic price changes that leave a just a temporary imprint on, on inflation itself. By contrast, in a high inflation regime, the opposite is true, uh, which also means that in a high inflation regime, in contrast to a low inflation regime, uh, the likelihood that inflation will become higher as a result of one-off shocks like in commodity prices or, or other food prices, for example, is greater. Now, the important thing is that transitions from low to high inflation regimes tend to be self-reinforcing. A number of reasons for that. One is that people actually start noticing inflation as opposed to changes in individual prices. Uh, that the, the inflation rate for me is going to become more similar to the inflation rate for you because all prices are rising as opposed to just certain idiosyncratic prices are rising. So all of this means that over time, as inflation increases, as become, it becomes a more important factor driving people's decisions, which then wage and price decisions, which then turns to uh, hardwire, entrench a higher inflation regime. So basically, let's say when inflation is low, I go and I negotiate my wages. I, I don't even think about inflation. You but don't think about inflation. Uh, and if you recall, just to underline the point, which this is not a particularly novel uh, observation. It was precisely both first Volcker and then Greenspan that defined price stability as a condition, as a situation in which inflation does not have a material impact on people's behavior. And that I think it's, it's a very important definition because it means that inflation is not a particular number. Inflation is a range within which people don't particularly notice it or care about it. But now that inflation is high, like Jack and you mentioned, when you go negotiate, you're like, well, inflation is high, I need more money. And so uh, that kind of builds some momentum into the process. And exactly. More entrenched. Exactly. And in a uh, regime that is on the risk of becoming a high inflation regime, is the level of interest rates, uh, the, the neutral level of interest rates, the appropriate level of interest rates higher than it would be in a low in inflation regime? And 
uh, how how long do you think this this might last? Where are central banks as they attempt to find the the new R star? Can you tell us a little bit about that process and and how they would reach that uh, uh, number? By the way, if you if you mention R star to me, it's like uh, showing red to a uh, to a bull. But I had a fear in my mind. I, I, I don't think that that's a particularly useful concept. But if you're if you are basically, and rather than saying what level, I would say that this way of thinking about the inflation process suggests that it's very important for central banks to be preemptive. And when there is a risk of a transition from a low to high inflation regime, to be laser focused on bringing inflation down. So the costs of uh, doing too little are bigger than the cost of doing too, too much. Uh, now, the broader question about where we are now and so on is uh, it will take a little bit longer to discuss. But anyway, as a general, as a general principle, that I think it's it's a useful one, and it is the one that we have been emphasizing in our work. Just on your on your topic, Varsky. Of course, the confidence spans for any R star model are enormous, so it's easy to see how how that can't be uh, super useful in in terms of actual actionable policy. But one one of the interesting things about the two inflation regime model work is that when you go into the high inflation regime qualitatively, there are changes in relationships. Now, we talked about how wages feed into prices more, but some of the more interesting work that you've recently done and has been cited by uh, Israel Schnabel of the ECB is how it seems like when we go into a high inflation regime, there, there suddenly is more of a relationship between uh, monetary aggregates and inflation. It's like the return of monetarism almost, which uh, was in vogue during the 1980s and kind of disappeared for, for some time. Yes, yes. Uh, let, me also, uh, let me also stress here that this observation is not particularly new. Uh, it, it, there, is a, uh, there is a literature which has uh, identified it. It's probably a literature that has not received the attention that it, it deserves. Now, if you go back to my previous uh, characterization of a low and a high inflation regime, I think it's one possible reason, which I think is an intuitive reason as to why the, you, you find a relationship when inflation is high as opposed to when inflation is low, is because, as I mentioned earlier, the common component of price changes, which is probably closer to the true definition of, of inflation, is, is higher when inflation is high as opposed to low. And you would expect that the, the behavior of monetary aggregates, particularly over longer term horizons, is more closely related to the common component, which is sort of true inflation and generalized increase in prices, than it is uh, to, in response to idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic price changes. I'm not saying that this is the only reason, but I think that this is one reason. Now, the, the interesting question, the interesting question is, what is the relationship between uh, money or money growth and inflation? during possible transitions from low to, to high inflation. And what we showed in that paper uh, that Isabel mentions is that I would say partly to our surprise when we did the analysis, we found that the link between the growth of monetary aggregates and, and inflation in the, current, during, in, in the current episodes in which inflation surged is actually quite, quite strong across countries. Countries that saw a stronger increase in, in money saw higher inflation. 
Um, and uh, so I, I think that that's an important thing. And moreover, more to the point, the size of inflation forecast errors uh, is positively related to the growth in monetary aggregates. So this suggests that even professional forecasts, had professionally forecasters with the benefit of hindsight looked at the behavior of monetary aggregates, they would have um, reduced, they would have, done, they would have done a better job at predicting where inflation would go. Now, this is one episode, uh, so I would not draw two, two um, very strong conclusions from it. But it would be useful to see how, going forward, uh, this relationship evolves. Thank you. And, and Dr. Borrow, when we, you say monetary aggregates or money, the money is, is correlated with inflation in your recent findings. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were talking about what uh, um, everyday, uh, what most people think of as money, uh, such as bank deposits. You are not talking about bank reserves, which are liabilities of central banks and the, the assets of, of banks mostly. Correct. I'm not talking about bank reserves. I'm talking about uh, uh, cash uh, and the deposits with the non-bank public. I mean, you can have many different definitions about which deposits you're going to include and so on. And this has been a perennial issue. Now, in, in, this, in the specific uh, piece of work that I mentioned earlier, we just used the most common definition that we could find across countries, the more standardized one which is, well, again, to be technical, M2 for, for whatever it's worth. Yeah, to, to Dr. Boyle's point, back when the Fed was trying to measure money in the 1980s, there was M1, M2, M3, M4, M5. They just couldn't, they just didn't know how to define it because there are so many innovations in the financial sector that uh, what was thought of as money was always changing. And to add to that, of course, there was also dollars offshore that made it difficult to count. So as Jack suggested, you know, one of the things when you think about monetary aggregates, you have to first start with a definition. And that's actually quite hard to, as some would say, myself included in the mod <clears throat> modern financial world, uh, treasury bills, for example, and many other treasuries because of, let's say, a deep liquid market because of the repo market are, are for, for many investors also somewhat money-like. Yeah. And, and how do you identify the, the correlation, if there is any, between the expansion of central bank balance sheets, which increases the level of reserves, to the, the changes in the money supply. It's my understanding that uh, you know some folks thought that quantitative easing originally 2008 to 2011 would would cause banks to start uh, lending again. Uh, you, in, in your actually paper, I believe uh, the 2012 paper on on financial cycles, uh, pointed out that. Uh, you know, re reserves are only for settlements between banks, and they do not are not part of the the monetary system. And then, what about now, when is, uh, central banks uh, did a lot of quantitative easing in 2020 and 2021? I particularly think of the Federal Reserve, and that coincided with a huge increase in the money supply. And was it uh, you know, a central bank buys uh, an asset from a commercial bank, and then the commercial bank replenishes that to buy it back, and then they, they issue a deposit? What is that, that, that correlation? I would say that over longer term, over longer periods, there is hardly any correlation. But you could have episodic correlations, which depend very much on, for example, as you said, actually, it's from whom the central bank buys the assets. If it buys them from non-banks, then uh, there is a one-off increase in, 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 in deposits. 
if it buys them from banks, there is just a change in the composition of the assets of, uh, of the banks. Now, in, we have an appendix in, in this bulletin that looks at the relationship between money growth and inflation that goes into some of the details of that. But if you look more, more generally uh, across countries over longer term periods, there is no relationship whatsoever between uh, the amount of reserves in the system and how they grow over time and uh, the growth in monetary aggregates, unless, of course, you have liquidity requirements, oh, sorry, reserve requirements that are related to deposits. And then obviously, as, uh, as deposits increase, the amount of reserves that banks have to hold increases. And that introduces a correlation. But the, there, the causality goes the other way. It's, it's uh, bank deposits that grow and reserves that grow, as opposed to reserves which are pushed into the system by the central bank, excess reserves, and the increasing monetary aggregates. Thank you. And now that's uh, quantitative easing, and, and now the Federal Reserve, and I believe the ECB, is doing the opposite of shrinking its balance sheet, so the amount of reserves is, is going down. Uh, if the goal of quantitative easing is to lower term premium, increase uh, risk-taking, increase the, the wealth effect, what are the policy goals of the ongoing quantitative tightening? Uh, and then I'll ask, you know, how, how long do you think the central banks will try to be on this path of quantitative tightening and, and reducing their balance sheet? Okay, let me just say I won't answer the second question okay. because we don't make any forecast here at the BIS. As to the first, I would say that there is conceptually and in practice a, a, a difference in the way in which central banks look at their easing and tightening. Uh, or increases and reductions in the balance sheet. When it comes to increases, the idea has been to have the biggest possible impact. It's like shock and awe, if you like. Um, and that means going in big time, uh, in a very short span of time, um, and to try and surprise markets, if you like, as much as possible. That's on the way in. On the way out, the idea is to have as little an impact on, on markets and term premium as possible. There is going to be an impact through the portfolio effect, simply the fact that you're withdrawing, uh, you're adding actually the amount of government paper that the private sector has to hold. But the idea is to try and limit the impact to the extent that you can. Uh, and that means that you go in with a bank, you withdraw with a, uh, you know, very, very gradually, that you go in probably surprising markets and you go out just making it quite clear that you will be withdrawing at a gradual pace over time. Um, and I think this distinction, is, uh, this distinction is very important. And one of the reasons why they don't want to uh, disturb markets on the way out is that they want to make sure that people focus on what they do to the interest rate as the signal of their impact on the economy, what they want to do with their monetary policy stance. And this is particularly important when you're talking to markets. Obviously, households couldn't give a damn, you know, <laughs> and many firms are not even aware probably of this distinction. But for the financial markets, which is a key uh, transmission mechanism for, for monetary policy, this is very important. For example, the extent to which bond deals would respond to central bank actions, just or uh, credit spreads or even equities. Thank you. Jo Joseph, uh, how responsible uh, for the huge sell-off in long-duration treasury bonds do you think is 
uh, the quantitative tightening. If the Federal Reserve was not doing quantitative tightening, do you think the, the sell-off in bond would not, would not have been quite as extreme? Yeah, I agree. So from, from a high level, you know, I think of asset prices as just supply and demand. And as we know, the supply is very large, the U.S. deficit is large, and in part, the supply is also large because of quantitative tightening, which increases the amount of treasuries the private sector has to absorb. But there's also a demand aspect as well. Historically speaking, uh, a lot of times when you have these disconnects or a lot of volatility in the markets, you would have, let's say, dealers or banks come and step in and they could buy uh, because they had pretty elastic balance sheets. That is to say, they could, you know, they could just kind of create credit and buy the stuff. But one of the side effects of what we've seen uh, after the, let's say, SLR and, and other regulations after the great financial crisis was that it made the banking system a lot safer. And we saw that again, banking system did very well in March 2020. But the sectors of the markets that were dependent upon bank involvement, they, they seem to be a lot more fragile. And so what we rightly see in the market is that there's much poor liquidity, even in very key markets like the treasury market, which of course um, has a lot of volatility now and did very poorly in March, 2020. So, so to Claudio, how do you view this trade-off where we, of course, regulations made the core of the financial system stronger, but there seems to be these side effects where markets that were dependent upon elastic balance sheets don't do very well. Right. Um, I think that too much is made of, of that trade-off. I'm not entirely sure that there is a significant trade-off at all. I mean, there are a number of ways in which the two things are actually complementary. And first of all, let me say that the, the type of, income, of impact that you're identified, that you have identified, I mean, is visible in some jurisdictions and far less visible in others. I mean, we're talking about the U.S. as an example of that. Um, secondly, I think uh, I would make a distinction between what I would call fair weather liquidity from uh, and robust uh, liquidity. And one of the problems that we saw before in the absence of, of regulation was that effectively there was no price to, to the balance sheet. Uh, we were in the opposite type of world. And this was one of the factors, not the only factor, but one of the factors that was fueling the type of uh, financial expansions that I was mentioning before. If, this, if anything, the system was not too inelastic, it was far too elastic. And this elasticity of the system, which actually varies across monetary and, and prudential regimes over time, is, it was a key factor enabling the big expansion of financial imbalances the macro level, I mean, the financial cycle that we measure, and which is longer than the business cycle, has to do with the interaction between credit and property prices in particular, something that I didn't mention earlier. But you also had sort of um, higher frequency, uh, shorter cycles or mini cycles in financial markets. Um, and so the, if you have less of an extension, uh, you're going to have fewer big problems in terms of financial stress. And if you have a more solid banking system, it would be able to, again, you're going to have less serious episodes of financial stress. So you may have less liquidity on a day-to-day -day basis. You might also have, in some cases, a little bit more of a uh, sort of hiccups on whatever hikes when, uh, 
when there are order imbalances, I, I guess, in the market where the supply and demand for particular securities or certain classes of securities is, is not quite in balance. But you're not going to get the more extreme, the more dangerous uh, uh, movement uh, dysfunctions that can have a bigger impact on the macro, uh, on the economy at large, on the financial system at large, and on, and, and on the macroeconomy. So, Dr. Bora, if I understand the the issue of government bonds, uh, perhaps if the if the issue goes up, yields may rise. Obviously, that's not your prediction. But but what you're saying is that there is a less of a risk of a disorderly move in yields, a, a huge you know fifty basis points gap in in one day. Whereas I think perhaps Joseph is more concerned about that, and you think that there will be stability uh, even if yields move up or down. To put it slightly differently, what I am saying, I'm not talking about the specific size of the move in a specific day. Mm -hmm. I'm rather saying, I'm rather saying that the financial system as a whole, as a whole, as opposed to just segments of it or particular market segments, is more robust if you have robust regulation, prudential regulation of financial institutions, of banks in particular, than if... Uh, if you don't, if you don't have it, um, or to put it differently, it's like the distinction of having very little fires in a wood and having a big fire at a web, at a particular point in time. So basically, prudential regulation prevents people from becoming the financial cycle becoming so large that it really can really blow up and have significant impacts on everyone else, like we saw during the great financial crisis. Or have very, very, very long periods of overextension in purely financial markets, as opposed to this bigger macro financial cycle that I was talking about before. Just to underline, because I wouldn't like people to go away with the wrong idea. When I was talking about the financial cycle before and the financial cycle being longer than the business cycle, what I had very much in mind was the interaction between credit and property prices in particular. Um, when I am talking about now about overextension, it could also be at the level of, of markets. You know, there is plenty of risk on and risk off episodes. And these are not the ones that I'm thinking about when I was talking about the financial cycle. One of the things that we've seen is that, uh, you know, the market always finds a way. And so as we've seen, the prudential regulations have made the banking system, the core of the financial system, much safer. You also have increasing growth in things like private credit, private equity, and so forth. Yeah. It seems like the financial market is adapting and just kind of moving elsewhere. Uh, would you think of that as something that would require more prudential regulation or or is it like the financial cycle is just like the business cycle it's kind of part of human nature and it, it just uh, it just finds a way and it grows well uh, first of all the financial cycle is definitely part of human nature it has to do with the way that we measure and assess risk it has to do with the way that you know people like Kindleberger said you know I'm looking at my neighbor and is getting rich, what am I going to do? You know, herd behavior and, and, and the like. Um, but, uh, the, uh, but the financial cycle depends on many, many, uh, many things. And in the case of prudential regulation in particular, as you know, and you, as you rightly mentioned, following the great financial uh, crisis, not cycle, the great financial crisis, there was a big move, a very good move to strengthen the prudential regulation of banks in, uh, in, in many different ways. And Basel III at the international level is the, if you like, the heading under which these things took place. That 
people were aware at the time that this would imply because you were inevitably making a bank intermediation more costly and the financial system is very fluid that you would get growth in the non-bank financial sector as the uh, participants adjust to try and evade the regulation tax, quote, quote, unquote. Now, that was partly intended because as a whole, the non-bank financial sector is less leveraged than banks. It has less maturity transformation than banks and is less involved in in payments than banks. And payments, of course, are absolutely essential for a for the economy. But having said that, still, the non-bank financial sector is rife with hidden leverage and with maturity or liquidity mismatches. And the regulation of that sector, which has to be in place, just as there is regulation in the, in the banking sector, didn't actually quite keep pace with the development of the non-bank financial uh, of non-bank financial institutions. There have been big international efforts still underway under the aegis of not so much the BIS, but the Financial Stability Board, which brings together government ministers of, well, the equivalent of, well, treasuries, central banks, and securities regulators, uh, or other prudential regulators. Um, but it has been hard going. Uh, and uh, and that's partly, I would say, a question of mandates. Central banks have a mandate for financial stability. Regulators, securities regulators, don't have a mandate for financial stability. They have a mandate for investor protection. And sometimes the, the two don't go hand in hand. So what is still missing, if you like, what's still missing is a perspective on the regulation, or it's not sufficiently well developed, to be more precise, is a type of regulation of the non-bank financial system that recognizes the systemic, system-wide impact of of the sector. Because there may be players in that sector, like, uh, for example, open-ended funds that do not necessarily go bust because they may actually, in that case, have little or no leverage, but they can have a big impact on the rest of of the financial system when they... Uh, end up doing fast sales because people withdraw the money they have invested in them. But this is just one example. The bigger issue is that we've regulated the banking sector. We have not quite made the same progress in the non-bank financial sector. And in particular, we have not made sufficient progress on uh, regulating that sector from a system-wide financial stability perspective. And there was one issue of the BIS quarterly revo- uh, review, when was it? Um, December 21, that was fully devoted to that quest. So it's an interesting point about uh, non-bank financial sectors. I, I now want to ask you about risk in the banking system, not credit risk, but but interest rate risk. And I'm going to lay out my, my very novice uh, understanding, so please cor- correct me if I, if I make any mistakes, but uh, Basel II was uh, somewhat light on uh, credit risk. So so banks, private banks could hold uh, assets on their balance sheets, such as you know, credit default swaps or, or you know, uh, subprime mortgages that were very risky with a relatively low risk rating. And as you alluded to earlier, uh, Basel III implemented a whole a series of changes and regulations on banks, both requiring them to hold more capital, but also on their risk weight. Suddenly those uh, risky instruments that now 
uh, um, that that could be held with a low risk rate suddenly had a much higher risk rate, and accordingly, you know, banks' holdings of them dropped sharply, and that's why you know the the credit default swap market is much smaller than it was. Uh, pre-GFC and stuff like that. So, so it's my understanding that, you know, uh, hearing people who, who really under, understand this, they give Basel III a, a tremendous amount of uh, regard and, and um, uh, credit for constraining credit risks and, I suppose, lowering the credit risk um, with, within the banking system by raising the risk weights. However, I want to ask you about interest rate risk in the banking sector. Uh, what does Basel III do about interest rate uh, risk, the, you know, the risk if a security falls in value because interest rates um, rise? Is it true that uh, treasuries uh, had zero, a zero risk weighting? And does that depend on duration? So if you, you, know, you bought a 30-year duration, a 30-year uh, treasury bond at 100 and now it's at $80, uh, that might be a problem. For you know, an unleveraged private investor, it's not a problem. But for some banks, uh, it might be a problem, such as in, in Silicon Valley, where the, uh, you know they had, I believe they had negative capital if you included those those losses. So, what do you think about interest rate risk within the banking system? Um, does something need to be, to be done about it? Is it a risk, or are you of the view of hey, if, if a bank bought it at one hundred dollars and now it's at eighty, that's the bank's problem. It shouldn't be central bank's problem. Without being too technical, um, Basel uh, Basel three was about credit risk fundamentally, uh, as you suggested, and also about liquidity risk, which we're not covering, but was another important part of uh, Basel III. Um, Basel III as such did not, as far as I remember, and I could be wrong, but uh, did not modify key arrangements in interest rate risk. It may, it may have done something about market risk, but not interest rate risk in the banking book, that in, in assets that you're not marking to market. Um, and it left that, it has a number of uh, general principles, guidelines, standards for, for uh, banks to follow across the world, but it doesn't have very specific requirements in, in, in that respect. Um, and so this is something that uh, will be examined also going forward, analyzed with uh, whether whether that may or may not be changed and when that might be changed is, is clearly a, a subject that, uh, that uh, merits attention. And as we said in, in the annual economic report, it's good to revisit uh, these issues. Now, the other thing that I would like to, so, uh, and central banks would care about banks going under regardless of what is the reason, whether it is, is interest rate risk or credit risk and so on. Now, most of the time, it's, never, it, it's not interest rate risk but it is credit risk. One reason why interest rate risk has been so, I would say, salient in the, in the current environment is because we started from a situation in which interest rates were negative and interest rates were very, very low for very, very long in, in a historically unprecedented way. And business models had adjusted to that environment. Uh, people were seeing low rates until, as far as I could see, and, uh, and that basically influenced their, their behavior. Now, what we have seen so far in the banking system in general and the economy is the materialization, as we said, of interest rate risk. And some banks, uh, or not even just banks, I mean, some in the UK, it was not banks, it was mainly investments of pension funds through leverage funds, uh, have run into trouble because of that. Now, of course, what we have yet to see, 
And then the question is not whether it will happen, but when and how intense it's going to be, and finally how strong the financial system is going to be to withstand it. What we haven't seen is yet the credit losses that indeed are partly related to the financial cycle kind of issues that we were talking about. The fact that we have high debt, the fact that we have property prices and economic activity which is weakening, and that is going to be a strain on, on balance sheets and people's cash flows, and that is going to cause retrenchment and possible bankruptcies, but financial stress more generally. So we've seen interest rate risk, we are still to see credit risk. And this is something, again, that we developed in the latest annual economic report, which came out in, um, in uh, June, and goes back to some of the points that we discussed before, that is the fact that uh, players have lengthened the maturity of their balance sheets, of their borrowing at fixed rates, but at some point that those maturities are going to come due and then they will need to refinance this at higher rates. Yeah, I'll, I'll ask a final question. So as we know, we're in this we're in a stage where uh, the, the public sector is trying to get inflation under control. But one of the interesting things that you've noted in your writing is that, you know, the, as you know, on the fiscal side, debt to GDP is very large, and at the central bank side, balance sheets are very large. There seems to be more constraints on the official sector. Um, how do you think of that playing out. Uh, for example, one commonly noted constraint is that as the debt to GDP gets very large, when you raise interest rates, paradoxically, you are increasing the amount of interest income to the private sector. So in a sense, that that's kind of not having the slowing effect of rate hikes that you would have expected. Um, so what kind of, how do you go, how do you think about these, um, I guess, state contingency? That is clearly one channel. Uh, now, the reason why I played down that channel is because, as I mentioned at, almost at the beginning of, the, of our discussion, was that creditors and debtors do not respond in the same way, and that debtors respond much more to higher interest rates than creditors do. So debtors cut their spending much more than, uh, debtors cut their spending much more than creditors increase theirs. So that's one, one, one reason. The other reason, of course, is that um, because, again, a little bit technical, I, I mentioned at the beginning that there are, uh, central banks and government balance sheets are very closely related. And the main reason is that the profits that the central bank makes go into the remittances to the treasury, to the government. Uh, now, the fact that banks have bought large amounts of uh, government securities, long-term government securities, and fin have financed them with reserves, I would go back to the reserves, which are interest-paying reserves, which is effectively means that they have financed it at the overnight rate, okay? means that although if you look at the public sector, the government sector narrowly defined, you look at the liability side, you say, oh, look, uh, their interest rates risk, well, the impact of higher interest rates on their cost, borrowing cost is very low because like the private sector firms, they have very long maturities at fixed rate. What's gonna happen is that the central bank makes losses and that means that it doesn't, remit transfer to the government its profit. So the fiscal position is going to be become 
more sensitive or else equal to higher interest rates because revenues of the government are going to fall, not because it's the cost of its liabilities is going to rise, but because its revenues are, is going to fall. So another way of putting this, that if you take the consolidated public sector balance sheet, so what, what has happened is that it's as if this consolidated sector, think of the government plus the central bank, has uh, bought back a lot of uh, long-term government debt and replaced it with overnight, overnight rate debt. And that actually increases as opposed to reduces the, uh, the sensitivity of interest of government debt, of government fiscal position to interest payments, which means that we're in the unfortunate situation that either government debt increases by more or you have to raise taxes. And of course, if you raise taxes, then this is also going to be reducing government, uh, reducing economic activity. So as we mentioned earlier, it's basically a big debt management operation. Uh, again, to your point earlier, how fiscal and monetary policies are intertwined, huge debt management operation, shortening the maturity of the consolidated public sector debt. And if you are a sovereign that is uh, more constrained by your finances, that has an impact. So let's say maybe more of a EM would be Correct. impacted. Very nicely put. <laughs> much better than I did. <laughs> no, well, Dr. Borio, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been an absolute uh, privilege to, to hear your thoughts. Uh, we will include links to, to all of the works that, that we've discussed in this interview uh, in the description. And uh, Joseph, thanks, thanks for uh, coming along with this interview. Thanks so much. Um, and guys, read the annual report. It's spectacular. And read more of the work of Dr. Borio on, on his website at the BIS. And yes. thank you for having me and having me here and for being so kind. <laughs> Our pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.